Good evening. Hello. Welcome to Enlightening Conversations. Uh, and my name is Polly Young Eisendrath, and I'm the chair of Enlightening Conversations. Uh, and uh, first of all, I'd like to say that we're very grateful that you made it here. I know a lot of people have sacrificed a lot to come, and uh, we hope that you enjoy the weekend and also that you find that this is a a kind of an unusual experience for you because it is a conversational conference and it's meant to be an experience that is evolving. In other words, it's a little like improvisational theater. We have a structure, but we don't know exactly what's going to happen. So uh, you're a part of that too. So um, this conference has been made possible um, through the hard work of a lot of people and also the generosity of Harvard Divinity School in donating this space and the other spaces that we're using, uh, and of a number of donors, including the Radius Foundation and uh, an anonymous donor and some other people that are listed in your program. At the end, we'll be thanking people individually, but I simply wanted to name these people and these uh, organizations first because without their help, we truly would not be here. Uh, Enlightening Conversations is itself a nonprofit organization that sponsors a series of conversational conferences that are held in different U.S. cities in which senior psychoanalysts and respected Buddhist teachers come together in impromptu dialogue to examine issues that are important to both. And as you might have figured out, this conference involves enlightenment and idealization. Um, so. The, uh, this is actually the fourth in a series of Enlightening Conversations conferences and the third large conference. Um, so although Buddhism and psychoanalysis share some common ground, and some people would say they share a lot of common ground, uh, there are other ways in which their practices and their results diverge in significant ways. And uh, this kind of sharing of common ground and divergence actually guarantees that these conferences are fertile and synergistic, that new things come up. When Buddhism first came to America in the 1940s and the 1950s, it came in dialogue with psychoanalysis. Many people don't know that or people have forgotten it. Um, those people who work with Anne Harrington here at Harvard might remember because it is really an interest of hers to investigate that period of time in the development of Buddhism in America. Early psychoanalytic interlocutors who were seriously interested in Buddhism include Carl Jung, Karen Horney, and Eric Fromm, among others, and most prominently, they learned about Zen from D.T. Suzuki. As the world changed, though, the dialogue between Buddhism and psychoanalysis gave way to different developments in mental health practices in North America. Over the past two decades especially, cognitive behavior therapy and mindfulness have joined forces in various mindfulness-based psychotherapies that have linked psychotherapy and mindfulness in the popular imagination. So generally speaking, when I go out and speak at conferences that involve psychotherapy and mindfulness, the connection is usually cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness practice. Enlightening Conversations is not about psychotherapy or mindfulness. It's about psychoanalysis and Buddhism. 
In other words, Enlightening Conversations is committed to studying the contemplative practices and insights that come from Buddhism as a religion and scholarly discipline rooted in meditation and other practices, and psychoanalysis as a two-person contemplative practice that studies subjectivity and intersubjectivity within a therapeutic relationship. Enlightening Conversations has opened up a special kind of conversation between these two disciplines. And this is the conversation that we'll be having uh, this weekend. It's an exchange that is mutual, open, respectful, and sometimes edgy. We've asked our presenters and are asking you, our audience, to speak honestly from experience and to question openly without hesitation. There are no prepared papers at this conference, although the panels will be structured in a manner akin to improvisational theater. We will be following some rules of engagement. You will see on the panel tonight and on the panels tomorrow that there is a structure in which presenters will introduce key terms, speak with each other about questions asked by the facilitator, and then speak with the audience. There is also a time tomorrow uh, in the afternoon for dividing into small discussion groups that are co-led by a psychoanalyst and a Buddhist teacher. All engagements among panelists and with the full audience will be time limited. A bell will be rung. This is the bell, and it sounds like this. <clears throat> by the facilitator when someone is speaking for too long, and that includes the audience. So consider the bell a kind of refresher button. You should stop speaking when the bell rings, and then the facilitator will help us all move on. I've asked our facilitators to take this job very seriously. It provides an environment where dialogue, not monologue, can reign, and which a conversation can be interrupted if it is turning into a debate. So that's the tone that we want to create here, where it's, there's a possibility for seeing something truly new, for something developing, a perspective developing that you haven't thought about previously. To get us started, I want to introduce a famous Zen dialogue, often used as a teaching about liberation and to see it briefly from two perspectives, the perspectives of the conference. According to the Zen tradition, the legendary Bodhidharma, the first Zen patriarch of China, was called by Emperor Wu of Liang to visit his court around the year 520. The emperor had been a faithful supporter of Buddhism. Bodhidharma was a radical hermit monk who had recently come from India to China to introduce a new form of practice, one grounded in sitting meditation. The emperor had invited Bodhidharma because the emperor was interested in this new practice. Significantly, the emperor began the conversation by saying he had built temples and given financial support to the monastic community, a common practice for a dedicated patron. Then he asked Bodhidharma how much merit or spiritual credit had he gained for these actions. Bodhidharma replied, none whatsoever. Perplexed by this, the emperor asked, what is the meaning of your holy truth? To which Bodhidharma instantly said, empty, nothing holy about it. Now, even more confused, the emperor asked, 
who stands before me? And Bodhidharma replied, I don't know. Now, this story is used often in Zen teaching, and it illustrates the uncompromising approach of Zen, grounded in emptiness and experience, eschewing dogma and devotion. When I first heard this story in 1970 as a young Zen student, I was transformed by it. I loved how the simple monk cut through the presumptions and the unconscious defenses of the powerful emperor. Over the years and decades, though, as I engaged in my own therapy, became a psychologist and then a Jungian analyst, I found I heard this story with a different ear. I became sympathetic, even empathic, with poor old Emperor Wu. After all, he was, he was approaching the master naively. And so I began to imagine the encounter as a first meeting in psychoanalysis in which the patient is Emperor Wu. Meeting with Dr. Bodhidharma, Emperor Wu begins. I have been recently reading about developments in relational psychoanalysis, and I've attended many lectures over the years. Do you think these could be helpful to my therapy with you? <laughs> Dr. B, not at all. <laughs> Emperor Wu. Oh dear, I hoped it would help a little. What is this therapy about? Dr. B, nothing that can be explained. <laughs> Emperor Wu, what gives you the right to talk to me like this? Dr. B, I have no idea. <laughs> Unless the analyst were already a well-known and idealized personage, someone perhaps like the notorious Jacques Lacan, he would never be so dismissive of the patient in a first meeting because, of course, the patient would not come back. <laughs> also, the analyst would want to know why the patient wanted to impress him. The effective psychoanalyst would have a real curiosity about the patient, his defenses, and his personality. The effective Zen teacher might not. The effective analytic relationship is typically considered to be mutual, a two-person relationship for studying unconscious dynamics presented by the patient. But the effective Buddhist teaching relationship may be a one-way awakening of wisdom in the student, the teacher being assumed to be already awakened. Differences in methods and in models of mind create rich distinctions between these two liberation practices. And hearing two ways of approaching Emperor Wu might begin to hint at some of those differences. In a few minutes, we'll be entering into this subject in depth as we hear a panel on the topic of human freedom that's facilitated by Grace Shearson. So this is Grace Shearson, who's getting up to turn off her cell phone. <laughs> and I'm going to introduce her, and then she will introduce the first panel. Mio and Grace Shearson is a Zen abbess, president of Shogaku Zen Institute, which is a Zen teacher's training seminary, and a clinical psychologist. She received her doctorate in clinical psychology at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California. She leads two practice centers and a retreat center under the Central Valley Zen Foundation, which also actually is the sponsoring organization for Enlightening Conversations. She's the author of Zen Women, Beyond Tea Ladies, Iron Maidens, and Macho Masters, which came out in 2009. 
And she's published articles in Shambhala Sun, Bodhidharma, I'm sorry, Bodhidharma, Buddha Dharma, and Tricycle Magazine. I have Bodhidharma on my mind. Um, she's also been anthologized in Zen books, the book of Mu, Receiving the Morrow, The Hidden Lamp, Seeds of Virtue, Seeds of Change, as well as in a book on spiritual training, The Arts of Contemplative Care. She received Dharma transmission from Sojin Mel Weitzman, Roshi of the Suzuki Roshi Zen lineage, the late Fukushima Kato Roshi of Tofukuji Monastery Kyoto, asked her to teach the koans that she studied with him during her practice, the koan studied with him during her practice. She's been married for 47 years, another koan. 48. 48 years, okay, and lives with her husband part-time. Part-time with your husband? No, I live part-time. <laughs> part-time on the Stanford We're campus. <laughs> lives, lives with her, her husband on the Stanford campus part-time, I think, and at her Zen retreat center, Empty Nest Zendo, in North Fork, California. And she has two grown sons and four grandchildren. Yeah, so. and, and part-time marriage. I mean, part-time marriage. Okay. You can have a really long marriage, though. <laughs> so double, double the time. Thank you, Grace. Uh, Bye. <laughs> well, good evening, everyone. It's great to see you here, and I'm glad Bye. we're off. Mike, uh, uh, to a good start. And um, we are going to be talking about. Um, what matters in this life? And when I look around the room, I see that some of us are engaging in gray hair at this time. So we're very interested in what matters in this life. And, and as, especially as we age. So what is the meaning of the holy truth from any perspective? So rather than just talk about the terms that we're going to be defining in this session, I thought I would tell you a story along the lines of Emperor Wu, but it's Sheldon Wuberg, who goes to see a guru in the mountains because he's very concerned with living a long time so he can practice effectively. So he goes to see the guru, and I'm pretty sure it was a Buddhist guru because it wasn't an analyst wearing a suit, you know, he was wearing a robe, sitting on a little pillow, and Sheldon says, you know, I see you, guru, of great accomplishment and long life. And I would love to emulate what you have done. Will you tell me your secrets? And the guru, uh, Master Lin, says, my first secret is that I crave nothing. When I eat, I have one lettuce leaf, one almond, and one glass of water. And I meditate for an hour at a time, and then I do a walking meditation for an hour at a time every single day, throughout the day, and even into the night. And I have had no sexual relations either. I have remained celibate for my whole life. And neither do I touch alcohol ever, or marijuana, even if it's legal in California. And Sheldon says, Guru, will I really live longer if I follow your program? And Guru says, no, but it will feel like you're living longer. <laughs> 
So this is a question about outcomes and expectation of outcomes and getting caught on the outcomes of either enlightenment or something else in psychoanalysis, clarity perhaps, or depth, rather than being engaged in the process of learning from each. So the terms that we're talking about are these exact terms, which is how do we not make it feel like we're doing this longer, but actually enjoy and fulfill our life through these practices. So we have to know something about what is possible in enlightenment. We have to know something about how we work with conscious desires to live a long time and unconscious desires to eat the last piece of cake. We have to understand um, how we idealize our teachers and strive for what we think they have rather than live our life in a way that fulfills ourselves. So we need to be um, clear about not reaching for the outcome, not engaging in the transference where we're projecting some great accomplishment on someone else that we want to get. And we need to know what is the healthy balance uh, between Sheldon Wuberg and his guru. Is he really going to do all the things that his guru says or not? Where's the balance there? And how do they find a wholesome place to interact? So the first speaker that I'm going to introduce is Andrew Olensky. And we're very lucky to have him here because he is a Buddhist scholar, teacher, and writer. And he was trained, actually, in Buddhist studies in uh, the UK, Harvard, and the University of Sri Lanka. He spent 25 years in Barry, Massachusetts, as Barry, Massachusetts, as the executive director of the Insight Meditation Society, then the Center for Buddhist Studies, and was a senior scholar there, too. So he is a member of the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy, He's the author of numerous chapters and articles um, and of the book, Unlimiting Mind, The Radically Experiential Psychology of Buddhism. So Andrew, let's hear from you. Thank you very much. This is on, I take it, yes? Well, we've each been given a word to define, uh, to start us off, and the word that I was given was Buddhahood. Uh, and I suppose the question of the, of the weekend really is, you know, can one attain Buddhahood? And if so, how does one do it? And what does it consist of? And I think I'm going to begin, since I'm the first one to go here, by throwing down a gauntlet and saying, yes, it is possible to attain Buddhahood. Uh, it's not as uh, esoteric as it's sometimes made out to be. And I want to try to just uh, sketch out a very simple way of understanding a Buddhahood that uh, um, makes it more accessible to us. But a couple of disclaimers first. One uh, is that my field is in early Buddhist studies, so I'm drawing all my inspiration and data from the Pali material, the Pali Canon, which was composed around the 5th to 3rd centuries BCE. They don't use the word Buddha as an abstract noun anywhere in this 
literature. So we won't find Buddhahood. That's more of a Mahayana development in, in later Buddhism. There is a complicated theology, or there's actually a word now, they call it Buddhology, around, you know, a Buddha is self-taught and teaches, and a Pacheka Buddha is self-taught but doesn't teach, and an Arahant has the same awakening but has to uh, learn it from a teacher. There's many things like that in later Buddhism. But I don't think that's really where the interest in this topic lies. Uh, it's really more in the psychological dimension, and I think that's where the early Buddhists uh, have a model that works very well. This word Buddha really uh, doesn't mean enlightenment. No, I'm sorry, that's the word we use, the Buddha was enlightened. It's an unfortunate uh, turn of phrase. I think it came in at the Victorian era because the word itself, Buddha, of course, comes from the word to awaken, to wake up. And so I'll more often refer to the Buddha's awakening than to his enlightenment. So the model is as simple as this, that we have within us as part of our human nature, as part of our genetics, as part of our psychological makeup, both uh, inherited from the race and from the past and cultivated and developed and laid down in this lifetime, we have a number of qualities in our psyches that cause suffering, that act as hindrances, that act, uh, the wording they use often in these texts is a kind of toxin a kind of pollutant to the mind, if you will. And the three major one of these, of course, sometimes called the three poisons, but that too is a later uh, word, are greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed is the very fundamental reflex to want something that you like. Uh, hatred is the very fundamental reflex to push away or try to avoid or, or harm something that you don't like or don't want. And delusion is not really understanding what's healthy and what isn't, what's, what's good for us and what isn't in, in many ways. Not understanding the nature of our mind and our experience. And anytime any of those factors are functioning in the mind, we are operating in such a way, behaving in such a way, thinking in such a way, having emotions in such a way that we cause harm to ourselves and to others. And that harm is the dukkha, it's the suffering, it's the, it's the sort of starting point of our, uh, our, our affliction, if you will. The entire teaching of early Buddhism is about how to heal that, how to so transform the mind, unconscious and conscious, such that those toxins are no longer operative. Now we do this all the time. There are moments when we are greedy and there are moments when we're not. There are moments when we're hateful and moments that we're not. So it's not something of an entirely different order. Uh, it's merely a way of sort of uh, working with mental states, working with emotional states in what they would consider a skillful way. Now, it's not just that we have these, these sort of unhealthy or toxic emotions and thoughts and drives and behaviors. We also have a parallel set of healthy ones that we have non-greed or you know, generosity and non-attachment, which is also fundamental to our nature. And we have non-hatred, also known as loving kindness and compassion, which is equally primal in us. And we have insight, wisdom, understanding, the ability to understand and see clearly what's going on in front of us. Now, the way this uh, sort of model is put out in the early text is uh, organized around these two important words, uh, what's healthy and what's unhealthy, wholesome or unwholesome, skillful or unskillful, 
all alternative translations of these words, kusala and akusala. And the idea is simply that when we are manifesting certain behaviors and mental traits that are rooted in either of these three, greed, hatred, and delusion, and there's a number of emotions that are rooted in those, we are somehow not flourishing. We're contracted, we're doing harm, not only in our behaviors on people outside, but fundamental to this psychology is that when our mind is toxic in some way, we're hurting ourselves. These toxic emotions actually can be very useful. They're very functionally efficient in the world. Uh, greed, hatred, and delusion is really what you know, enabled the dinosaurs to survive so well until their time was up. And so we have these primitive drives and they work well. It's our operating system. But we also have another set of operating dimensions, these uh, kinder, gentler emotions, if you will, of uh, generosity, kindness, and understanding. And at any given moment in the dynamics of Buddhist psychology, there's really only one thing in the mind that's happening at a time. Of course, lots of different things are cooperating, but all of it cooperates into sort of one global mind moment, one expression of who you are at any given moment. That's the stream of consciousness. Moment after moment after moment, there's a new sort of configuration arising in the mind and the brain. And that, because of the binary nature of our emotional life, that event is going to either be dominated by one of these wholesome and healthy emotions, or it's going to be dominated by one of the unwholesome and unhealthy ones. The goal of practice is largely to try to work within that context to gradually transform the mind, gradually bring out and encourage and develop those things that are healthy and helpful and skillful to our happiness and well-being, and those things that inevitably come up that are harmful to our well-being and to the well-being of others are things to be gradually abandoned, let go of. Now, we, do, we know from psychology, of course, that we can't just suppress those things that give us difficulty. And we can't act them out, according to Buddhist psychology, because they'll just get stronger. So the middle ground between that is seeing it for what it is, understanding whether it's helpful or unhelpful, and if it's unhelpful, letting go of it, let it flow by, because everything's changing, it will go away. And if it's uh, helpful, then somehow encourage it, uh, develop it, uh, strengthen and nourish it. So it's a kind of mental hygiene that goes on moment after moment. So awakening is simply that idea taken to its furthest extreme. Now, these unhealthy and healthy emotional states or mental states and behaviors, they can manifest at three different levels. One is what we would call unconscious, that is latent dispositions. The potential for both healthy and unhealthy emotions or lie within us at all times. That's the unconscious mind is a series of potentials, if you will, rather than anything that's actually enacted. Conscious moments arise moment after moment in response to certain stimuli from the environment, and we meet that stimulus with some sort of emotional response. Every moment when information comes in, we have to understand it cognitively, we have to put an, uh, a sensory uh, pleasure or pain, hedonic valence uh, on it, and there's some sort of emotional response that's called for. It's these emotional responses that get us into difficulty or get us clear. And then, depending on what arises in the mind in any given moment, that's then going to be enacted in our behavior. 
If we're feeling angry, we're going to say something angry. If we're feeling kind, we're going to say something kindly. Is this kind? <laughs> kind of ringing it. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. And we'll come back to a lot of these questions about this gradual process and, and where we end up with an outcome. Um, I'm going to be introducing each speaker and then, sorry, I'm going to be introducing each speaker before uh, he presents and he or she and um, then they will announce the word uh, that they will be working on. So next is Robert Caper. So uh, Robert Caper is a psychoanalyst, psychiatrist, author of three books, Immaterial Facts, A Mind of One's Own, and Building Out into the Dark. And he's written numerous papers on psychoanalysis. He maintains a private practice in Vermont, and he also supervises other analysts widely. He's a former member of the editorial boards of the International Journal of Psychoanalysis and the Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association. He has lectured and taught in the US, Canada, Great Britain, France, Italy, Spain, Australia, Argentina, Brazil, and Chile. Thank you, Robert. And the word is? Sounds like a quiz show. The word is idealization. Um, right, idealization uh, in, in 10 minutes. <laughs> idealization is a product of splitting. Uh, just as where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's idealization, there's splitting. So what is splitting? Um, we, I think we often lose sight of what a tremendous accomplishment it is for us to be able to see the world and particularly other people in all its complexity and all their complexity. People are very complicated mixtures of good and bad, um, as Andrew was suggesting. Uh, and our relationships to them uh, are extremely um, uh, intricate and require a great deal of skill to navigate successfully, uh, to see people as they are, to see ourselves as they are. This is a very sophisticated emotional and psychological accomplishment. So it's not surprising that young children are pretty much unable to do it. Uh, and what young children do is they split. If they have a relationship to someone, say, a mother who's gratifying, that's a good mother. If the same mother becomes frustrating and prohibitive, that's a bad mother. They're two different people. You don't have mixed feelings about your mother as a young child. You have a relationship with a good mother you try to preserve and a relationship with a bad mother that you try to get away from. That division into good and bad is what splitting is. Um, to get an idea of what that looks like, um, think about a melodrama. The characters in a melodrama are good characters and bad characters. 
Uh, there's a certain kind of emotional gratification we get from watching melodrama that we don't get from watching drama, which portrays people in all their complexities and makes it very hard to side with one character against another. Um, fairy tales are another example of splitting. The, uh, the good mother, the good queen, the bad witch, the uh, bad stepmother, the bad stepfather, the good prince, the good princess, things are portrayed in black and white. Uh, and splitting produces both these ideally good figures and ideally bad figures. Um, we talk about idealization usually in reference to something that's ideally good, but it's important to keep in mind that splitting produces both and that uh, we tend to draw ourselves to the good half of the split and run away from the bad one, but there's always a bad one. And uh, if you see, if, you, if you're wondering if something is an idealization, I tend to look for something else that's very bad and to uh, uh, not conclude that I'm dealing with an idealization until I can find the other half of it somewhere. Uh, that, that's because of the nature of splitting. So that's, that's one point about idealization. And a second point I want to make is that um, we tend to draw ourselves into a relationship with the ideal good object, uh, something like a personal God who is wise, omnipotent, um, helpful, has a special relationship with us, and through the relationship with the um, good object, this good person, this good figure, we become empowered, we, be, we feel safe, we feel secure. Children do this. The reason for this is that when we engage in splitting, we're not only dividing a real figure, a real complex figure, into a good and a bad half, we're dividing ourselves the same way. So there's a good me with a good you, a good baby with a good mommy, and then there's somebody else over there. This. Uh, dynamic is particularly apparent in, in groups where uh, every group has, has an outgroup. Every group feels somehow or other that they're better than the other guys. Um, it's, it's like the joke about the, uh, um, the Jew who was deserted on a, on a desert island and after many years was finally rescued and the captain of the ship who rescued him rowed ashore and, and he said, listen, before you rescue me, before, before we leave, I want to show you what I've done here. And he shows him this beautiful building made out of palm fronds and bamboo and it's very elaborate. He said, that's my, that's my synagogue, that's my temple. And the captain said, well, that's really very nice. You must be very devout. And, but I noticed there's another building over there. It's exactly the same. He said, what's that? Oh, that's the one I wouldn't be caught dead in. <laughs> <laughs> There has to be an outgroup. Um, the uh, third point I want to make about idealization, uh, I can convey in a story that a, that a teacher of mine once told me, um, true story, she was a child psychoanalyst, and she had an 11-year-old boy as a patient. Um, 
And one day she said that this boy came into his session and announced that he was a genius. Uh, and she said, at what? <laughs> and he said, I'm just a genius. And she said, you can't just be a genius. You have to be a genius at something. <laughs> There's no such thing as a genius. There are people who are geniuses at something. Um, so one of the questions I would like to pose for the panel uh, about enlightenment, unqualified enlightenment, is, is that similar or is it different from being a genius unqualified? <laughs> Can you be enlightened or do you have to be enlightened about something? Um, thank you, and I think it's a good question, um, but I wouldn't be caught dead in that other temple asking that question. <laughs> so I'd like to introduce uh, Shinzen Young, whose uh, love of Asian culture began when he was a teenager in Los Angeles, and he enrolled in a doctoral program in Buddhist studies at the University of Wisconsin. Eventually, he went to practice in Asia and did extensive training in each of the three major Buddhist traditions, Vajrayana, Zen, and Vipassana. Upon returning to the United States, his academic interest changed to the dialogue between meditators and Western science. So uh, Shenzhen is known for his innovative, interactive, algorithmic approach, sounds kind of rhythmic, to mindfulness, a system specifically designed for use in pain management, recovery support, and as an adjunct to psychotherapy. He leads meditation retreats throughout North America and has helped establish numerous mindfulness centers and programs. He also consults widely on meditation-related research in both clinical and basic science domains. And his quote is, my life's passion lies in exploring what may arise from the cross-fertilization of the best of the East with the best of the West. So you're in just the right place. Thank you, Shinzen. Okay. So uh, <clears throat> looks like the mic is on. Um, I have apparently been given the E word to uh, <clears throat> define <laughs> enlightenment. Excuse me. So, um, it's just a word in English, and it means different things in different contexts. So I think that's the first thing that comes to my mind. There actually isn't uh, a thing, a well-defined thing called enlightenment. It's an English word, and in different contexts, uh, different people are going to use it to mean very, very different things. So if we start getting involved in um, <clears throat> discussions about the nature of enlightenment without first being very clear what we're talking about, um, boy, that's just going to go on and on and lead nowhere. So when I think of the English word enlightenment, this is me personally. Because as I understand it, we're allowed to talk from my own, our own personal experience. Um, I tend to think of it as corresponding to what in early Buddhism would have been called sota apatti, which means literally in the Pali language, entering the stream. 
and roughly, very roughly, corresponding to what in the Zen tradition is often referred to as Kensho, uh, <clears throat> or your first liberating insight. So that's how the word sort of resonates for me. Um, so let's just talk about it that way. A um, <clears throat> couple things come to mind. Um, uh, one is that um, it can be described in a lot of different ways. Uh, the standard one from early Buddhism, which is the one that I tend to use, uh, <clears throat> involves a realization that there is no thing inside one called a self. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not an activity called personality that can be manifested. But this perception that we have that there is an entity abiding in us that's reinforced by our language constantly, the noun, you know, the pronouns and such. Um, you could either say that perception goes away or you realize that there never was a, a, a thing called self there. That's one way it can be described, but there's a lot of other ways. Some people describe it as realizing their true self. Some people describe it as a, <clears throat> a oneness experience. Some people describe it as an emptiness experience. Some people describe it as an elastic identity that is no longer limited to a single mind-body uh, experience. So confusing, is it the true self <laughs> or is there truly no self? Um, words can be very tricky. You have to have a sensitivity for what the person is really talking about. So I would say it's something along the lines I just mentioned, if we want to use it, enlightenment in just that limited sense. Um, it is, all, uh, I would like you, there's a bunch of things I'd like you to keep in mind about it. The first is it is absolutely permanent. We're not talking about a peak experience that happens to you and then fades. Something changes and there's no going back. Once you realize that um, <clears throat> an eclipse is just a one celestial body uh, casting a shadow on another if it's a lunar eclipse. Um, you still see it, but you don't see a monster eating the moon anymore. <laughs> it's that you're, a fundamental paradigm shift has taken place. There's no going back. Early civilizations saw monsters eating up the moon. But once you know this other view, you can still sort of see it that way, but you don't believe it. So. It is not a peak experience. It is a permanent shift in paradigm. Uh, number two, it's often described as happening suddenly, but I have to say in my many years of teaching in the field, it typically seems to not happen suddenly. It typically seems to sort of gradually grow on a person. Sometimes so gradually they may not realize how enlightened they've become. Um, now, does it sometimes happen dramatically and suddenly? Absolutely. Just to give you a reality check on how prevalent 
the experience I'm choosing to call enlightenment is. Because remember, it's a fungible term. People are going to use it in a lot of different ways. Um, this kind of enlightenment, this, uh, someone getting it suddenly and dramatically the way you may have read about in the books, um, I don't know, maybe every other retreat I run, that happens to someone. So give you a little reality check what we're talking about. Not like so far away. Um, the other thing I'd like you to keep in mind is um, that, uh, <clears throat> well, we were talking about idealization. So my phraseology is um, um, there's no such thing as informed consent to enlightenment. It's both better than and not nearly as good as people think it is. <laughs> if we're using it in the sense I'm choosing to use it. Um, uh, it's both better than and not nearly as good. I, I just can't say anything more. Um, uh, okay, so, well, maybe I can say a little more. Um, <laughs> It's one thing to read about something or wonder about something or wish for something. It's quite another thing to have that be your moment-by-moment -moment reality. And if once it becomes a person's moment-by-moment -moment reality, it's, it's the... Well, if you had a choice of one day living that way and living your entire life not knowing what you know, um, but having millions of dollars and being famous and powerful, or one day li living as an obscure person, but knowing what you know, you would choose that one day. So in that, uh, in that sense, it's better than anything you can imagine. Uh, <clears throat> on the other hand, does it mean that you don't screw up anymore, or don't uh, act in horrible ways, or, uh, or that your judgments are always correct? Absolutely not. Not enlightenment in the sense I'm using the word. Uh, you are still hugely subject to um, mistakes and um, bad behaviors, etc., etc. It's a lifetime of gradually refining how you carry yourself in the world based on this platform. And it, it grows and grows and grows and grows with time. So um, I would say um, that um, there's, in a sense, two sides to enlightenment. One is uh, liberation, which is the uh, understanding that your identity is not limited to the mind and body. Your thoughts and your physical and emotional sensations become a home where you live, as opposed to a prison where you're always uh, uh, constrained. Um, so there's that side to, to enlightenment. We might call it liberation or elastic identity. And then there, uh, there's the side to enlightenment called being a good person. And there's a relationship between those two. Uh, the enlightenment, as I'm using the term, gives you a kind of Archimedean point 
a place to stand where from you can optimally refine how you carry yourself in the world. Uh, but, and it will tend to move you in that direction, but it does not guarantee that you will become a good person. So I think it is absolutely essential that we do become good people, and that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> There's no bell. No self, no bell. Okay. Uh, the next person I'm going to introduce is Polly Young Eisendrath, who you've met as she's introduced the conference, and this is one of her babies. She is a psychologist, a speaker and teacher. Uh, she teaches mindfulness, and she corrects me all the time, <laughs> and, and vice versa. <laughs> and uh, she has a clinical and consulting practice in central Vermont. She came to psychology and Jungian training through, the, through Buddhist practice, and uh, she described that as um, through her Zen vows in, in 1971. She has published on couples, relationships, women's development, parenting, and psychotherapy practice, aiming at practical, implica practical applications of wisdom and insight, again, through psychology, through psychoanalysis, through meditation, and through self-awareness. Among her many publications are The Cambridge Companion to Young, um, Raising Confident and Compassionate Kids in an Age of Self-Importance, Women and Desire Beyond Wanting to be Wanted, The Resilient Spirit Transforming Suffering into Insight and Renewal. Her most recent book is a memoir, The Present Heart, a memoir of love, loss, and discovery. And this book is about um, love in the face of losing her beloved husband, Ed Epstein, to an early onset Alzheimer's disease. Thank you. Thank you, Grace. Well, I'm really liking the conversation so far. Whoa. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to uh, be talking about consciousness and unconsciousness, and also um, the um, imagined kind of end product of psychoanalytic work. What, what is it that we're aiming for uh, in an effective psychoanalysis? Um, so uh, what strikes me as important about human consciousness is that um, it is not only that we are conscious, but that we know we are conscious. And so that reflective aspect and the way it can be expanded has both good and not so good sides to it. On the good side, we have this capacity to reflect, to step back, to recognize what our experience is, even when we're sleeping. We can be dreaming, for example, and we can recognize I'm dreaming. Um, and so because of this kind of reflective consciousness, it gives us all sorts of capacities that other animals do not have. And one of those, of course, is to meditate. That is, intentionally to meditate. Other animals may do it unintentionally. Another one is to create drones and kill people that we don't see. So on one hand, we abstract ourselves for what we might call compassionate reasons. And on the other hand, we can abstract ourselves for very destructive reasons. We can decenter 
from our experience and take ourselves away from the immediate experience and be conscious of doing that and then create systems, abstract systems, from that decentering. So that kind of consciousness is really quite different from consciousness that other animals have. Um, that kind of consciousness also allows us to defend ourselves and our unconsciousness in many and varied ways. So um, on the side of unconsciousness, uh, the psychoanalytic model of mind uh, essentially asks us to look at the unconscious unknown in terms of principally two kinds of mind. One is a kind of impersonal mind that uh, Freud referred to as the id or the it, and that's sort of instinctual, it's aggressive and sexual and connected to sorts of drives and so on. Uh, Jung called it the collective unconscious and it was broader and basically has to do with the whole sort of framework of what it means to be a human being, to have this long dependency of childhood, to grow to maturity, to recognize our own death and to die and so on, all of which we're all confined to. And so it is universal. Um, the other aspect of the unconscious <clears throat> that psychoanalysts focus on is what you could call the personal unconscious or you could call it the repressed unconscious or the dynamically repressed unconscious. And this is the aspect of our unconscious life that's related to the habits of our own mind. And those habits are these underlying templates that we know now are connected, especially with emotional memory, the limbic system. And emotional memory <clears throat> is um, what psychoanalysts investigate often in their work. And that is the kind of um, memory that we create in the present moment without knowing it. So uh, sometimes the term repetition compulsion is used for this, sometimes uh, psychological complex, unconscious complex. And it means that in a particular moment, there's the reassembling of a puzzle, particularly an emotionally aroused, arousing moment. There's the reassembling of a puzzle from early dynamic events that we have occluded or dissociated from our consciousness. And they come in through emotional arousal and they seem to be happening in that moment. So we treat the person across the table as though that person were our depressed mother. Or we treat the person with whom we're having the argument as though that person were our angry father. And we do not discriminate in that moment in all of our perceptions, our eyes, our ears, the way things smell, the way they sound, we don't discriminate the present from that past. In other words, we configure the entirety of our experience unconsciously and believe it. And we believe we have the evidence for it. And so that kind of template, you could say it sort of drifts like a metaphor to organize our conscious experience that comes from the unconscious mind, and there is no way to discover it without investigating it because it colors your perceptions. And so that's a good deal of what we investigate in psychoanalysis is that dynamic re dynamically repressed unconscious, the unconscious that is occluded from the conscious mind. Now, from a psychoanalytic point of view, we do not think it would ever be possible to be conscious of all of that 
that has been dissociated, repressed, denied, because it would overwhelm our consciousness with anxiety. In other words, we have hidden motivations that we cannot know because they are impossible for us to actually experience. And some of those go back to that infancy where Robert was talking about splitting, where we have in our experience split off very destructive um, objects or the ways we've organized our experience so that there's a destructive aspect to it. Uh, and then those things remain as potentials in our experience in the present moment. So in an effective psychoanalysis, we investigate these, these metaphoric templates, these complexes, these repetition compulsions in a safe relationship. And what we come to find is that they, um, they can be known and seen. People can remember things that happen to them, but not always. Um, but perhaps the most important outcome is that you become sort of uncertain about yourself. You actually feel, as a person, more modest about knowing yourself at the end of the analysis than you did at the beginning. Because you come to see that you are not the person that you think you are. And I see a lot of Buddhist practitioners in therapy. <clears throat> I'm uh, like Barry Madgett. I, have a niche of neurotic Buddhists. Those are the people I see in therapy. And uh, so I, I see people who are longtime practitioners, teachers, and so on. And um, even they, having investigated their mind in many, many retreats, are surprised as to what comes up in the dynamic with me in therapy in which we're investigating within a therapeutic relationship. And we're looking at things that are happening in the present moment, rising to the surface. Ultimately, what you come to see I believe, in an effective analysis, is that you have to keep on inquiring. You have to inquire with other people. You cannot know yourself as though you are an entity. But instead, you must come to see that what you leave out and what remains unconscious over time even could be as important as what you think is conscious. One more thing. Uh, we all have these defenses. The defenses actually protect us from experiencing what we cannot experience in ourselves. And so Buddhist teachers also have defenses. And when they don't investigate those defenses, a lot of what they do, or they can do, or they might do, that could be harmful, can be easily rationalized. And that rationalizing can come through some of the Buddhist theory. Now, I'm not saying that this happens all the time. I'm saying it has happened. It has happened. And some very enlightened, enlightened teachers have rationalized through Buddhist theory things that are done that are harmful. And I think one reason for having a conference like this is to begin to talk about the complexity of unconsciousness and defenses of unconsciousness over against the idealization of practice, or people sometimes who are mm -hmm. teachers. So that's my 10 minutes. Great. Wow. <laughs> we're going to stop now because oh. we're going to just need a break. Um, but we have a couple more terms after the break to be defined. The stages of enlightenment. Are there stages of enlightenment? We're on the stage of enlightenment right this is now. This is it. Bodhisattva <laughs> uh, Buddha. Uh, and also, um, we're going to, uh, Stuart will be working on 
the psychoanalytic term suggestion. So if you would like to suggest any questions to me before you leave for your break, um, I'll write them down and see if we can work them in to the conversation that occurs afterwards. And if you have interest in those other two topics, suggestion or arhat, bodhisattva Buddha, uh, also we'll take those questions. Thank you. <laughs> you're not my mother. I know you're not my mother. <laughs> you're my mother. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yours. <laughs> oh well. So anyway, the the Buddhists teach that everybody's everybody's mother, right? So you're going to meet them sooner or later in this lifetime. So we're going to have ten minutes now, and. Uh, please enjoy. Well, welcome back. And I have the pleasure of introducing Melissa Miozen Blacker Roshi. And um, she's going to, um, I'm going to say what she's talking about Buddhahood, Arhats, <laughs> and so on, because we had a question come up on this subject that is for everyone. Um, if there's any Buddha or Arhat in the room, we'd like you to stand up at some point. <laughs> Later, later, and then tell us about it. So it's a, it's a very good question, because especially as we've talked about that there is such a thing, and yet, and yet, we still have problems. So anyway, Melissa is a Zen teacher and abbot of Boundless Way Zen. <laughs> yes, you just stood up, so maybe we've got you in tow. Maybe, maybe it's you. Yeah, yeah. it is a serious question, and we're going to talk about it, because um, even if we don't have one in this room, this, uh, I haven't given up on the idea of finding one. I'm told that there, there are such things, and I, I truly believe, and I'm a faithful follower of Buddhism, I just haven't met the fully in line one yet. Oh, you better go find him. I'm, Grace, I'm going to for the Buddha. Grace, I'm going to clarify that. Uh, yeah, good. Okay, but let me yeah. let me introduce you. We're getting uh, excited about our discussion, and that's good. So, uh, Melissa uh, Miozen Blacker Roshi is a Zen teacher and abbot of Boundless Way Zen, and she is a resident teacher and priest at Boundless Way Temple in Worcester, Mass. She holds a degree in anthropology, music, and counseling psychology, and has a private practice in contemplative counseling. Uh, she was a teacher and director of programs at the Center for Mindfulness, founded by John Kabat-Zinn. Her writing appears in a number of collections, including Best Buddhist Writing, 2012, and she is co-editor of the book of Mu, Essential Writings on Zen's Most Important Koan. So. We're happy to have her here. Thank the, you. The Buddha. And I can answer this question. Ah. Very excited. I'm going to put it off for just a few moments, though, to keep, to keep the anticipation high. It's so, it's so interesting to me that I was given this topic by Grace about stages of enlightenment, because in the kind of Zen that I teach, we don't actually teach about stages of enlightenment. Uh, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about stages of enlightenment anyway. Uh, I was saying to somebody during the break that when you put two Buddhists together, uh, they're sure to have different definitions of everything involved in Buddhism. So I was happy that Shinzen mentioned that enlightenment is uh, definitely thought of and uh, practiced differently depending on who you learn from and who is your teacher and what uh, form of Buddhism you practice. In the Zen tradition, uh, and this is the answer to your question. 
everybody should raise their hand when I say, are there any Buddhas in the room? So everyone is already a Buddha in the sense of the original meaning of the word Buddha, which is awakened. The awakened heart-mind is present in everyone, and realization or awakening to that fact is what we call, we don't, we don't like to use the word enlightenment, uh, but we do sometimes call it awakening or realization, which I think are more accurate terms if you buy into this idea that human beings are essentially already Buddhas, but just don't know it yet. So part of the training in, in uh, Zen Buddhism is to help people to realize that. And I was really interested in what, um, what you said about splitting, because I think part of the thing that human beings do is we split everything, and we make uh, schemas for everything. So we say, the good part of me is somewhere in that other person, and I have to somehow find my way to be that person. In this basic teaching, if everybody's already a Buddha, what that means is to realize it in yourself and to see that even the things that we call the poisons or the kleshas, the, the things that obscure this awakened nature, are also the awakened nature manifesting as those things. So this is a non-dual understanding. But I was asked to talk about arhats, <laughs> bodhisattvas, and buddhas. So arhats, we've already heard a little bit about arhats. I'm going to let you in on a secret. Among Zen Buddhists, we call arhats miserable arhats. Mm. Uh, we feel sorry for them. Because they're stuck in a schema. So the schema is the fourth level of a very well-articulated, uh, beautifully human version of if you practice, you achieve this and then you achieve this, and then you achieve this, and then you become an arhat. And in the Mahayana Reformation, um, the term bodhisattva came into play. It was already used to describe uh, the Buddha's previous lives. Uh, he was a bodhisattva, wisdom being. Uh, I believe arhat means an accomplished being, but uh, you would know that better than me. A worthy being, right. So worthy beings, um, wisdom beings, these, uh, the Mahayana tradition of Bodhisattva adopted that term as meaning someone who has decided to uh, put off full realization of Buddhahood, of this uh, full realization to, to be present in the world as the person helping other people to become realized beings. So, uh, so to be an arhat means you're at this fourth level in a certain schema. To be a Bodhisattva means you're at another level in a certain schema. To be a Buddha means you've finished, you've reached the peak. As one of my students said to me recently, you get the tiara. <laughs> and the, the, uh, the problem with all that, those terms for me is that they enhance this, um, this tendency that we have as human beings to do idealization, to practice idealization, to practice splitting, to say that some things are good and some things are bad to actually have an experience of everything that is human being a manifestation of awakening is something that you can't do intellectually. It comes through practice. Uh, we like to say that awakening is an accident, but that meditation practice makes you accident prone. <laughs> and there's, a, there's a, a beautiful quote that I love that I learned from my first teacher, which is from a, a Mahayana Sutra, uh, the Lankavatara Sutra. 
uh, which says, and, and this is similar, there's some sort of Venn diagram overlaps with what everybody said, similar to something Shinzen said, that in this awaken, this realization that everything is it, there's nothing left out of it. Because if you leave anything out, you're carving up human beings into little pieces. And you're saying, yes, this part of me is, is great, but that part. And so this uh, capacity to bring everything into play. Uh, the quote from the sutra is that at this moment when you realize this, which in Japanese Zen we call kensho, which uh, Shinzen referred to, which just means uh, seeing into your true nature, this true nature of being an awakened being, there's a turning about at the deepest seat of consciousness, a turning about at the deepest seat of consciousness, not of unconsciousness. So there's, there's actually an awake realization. There's an, oh, all these things that I've been pushing away from myself and saying, not it, not it, not it. I want to be like him. I want to be like her. All the time, it's been this. And that turning about, it's something that uh, doesn't leave you, you know, it, and yet it gets obscured again because that's how minds work. Minds are continually obscuring these kinds of things. So that's what I wanted to say this evening, just to get this, uh, this rolling, that from this point of view, uh, it's kind of uh, 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 good news. It's, a, it's like gospel. Already Buddha. And yet, it's hard to believe, because how could this miserable human being be a Buddha? If you realize that this miserable human being is the perfect definition of a Buddha, then everything shifts and changes. He does. He and so uh, we're now ready to hear from um, Stuart Pizer. I've just left my body, mind, and this space, and I'm enjoying this conversation, but I came back for Stuart. Stuart is a founding board member, faculty, and supervising analyst, and former president of the Massachusetts Institute for Psychoanalysis. Uh, he's also uh, assistant professor for psychology and department of psychiatry at Harvard uh, Medical School. He's a supervising and analyst institute for relational psychoanalysis of Philadelphia. He's visiting faculty and member of the advisory board Toronto Institute for Contemporary Psychoanalysis and honorary faculty Institute for Contemporary Psychoanalysis Los Angeles. He is an associate editor of the Psychoanalytic Dialogues and of the Psychoanalytic Quarterly. He is also past president of the International Association for Relational Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy. His book, Building Bridges, The Negotiation of Paradox in Psychoanalysis, was recent, uh, published in 1998. So he now has a private practice in Cambridge and brings all that psychoanalysis to us. Thank you, Stuart. <laughs> Thank you, Grace. <clears throat> so the word I'm supposed to speak to, by the way, is there too much echo? The word I'm supposed to speak to is suggestion. And uh, if your stomach's growling right now, it may suggest to you that you're hungry because you haven't eaten yet. Uh, the very 
word, the very title, Enlightening Conversations, may suggest that if you attend, you will leave uh, with more enlightenment, more and more enlightened. Um, suggestion, if we think of it uh, not yet psychoanalytically, but in its dictionary etymology, is from the Latin sub and gestere, to get from below, to bring up from below. And I think that that's one reason why we can associate with the word suggestion things like innuendo, implication, uh, even suggestive. Uh, and so what has been its place in psychoanalysis? In a way, I don't think it has as clear and central a place in psychoanalytic thinking as idealization or uh, thinking in terms of unconscious process and defense. Um, I guess originally the word suggestion enters psychoanalysis through its roots in hypnosis. And the hypnotic suggestion, which is, you know, for example, uh, after you wake up, uh, when I clap my hands twice, you'll laugh as if I've told you a joke. Now that suggestion sounds to me a bit like a command or an instruction. So there's a slipperiness, it seems to me, to the word uh, suggestion. Um, in the early days of psychoanalysis, a, a kind of hierarchy of value that uh, was developed where interpretation was the apex of what an analyst might offer. Uh, the patient uh, offered free associations. The analyst offered the well-timed, exact, perfectly clear interpretation, the apt interpretation. Uh, Freud's metaphor was the surgeon's scalpel, in a sense. Uh, but that suggestion uh, in the hierarchy of psychoanalytic interventions was a somewhat lower form of seeking to influence the life of the person, more at the surface, more at the level of consciousness, choice, decision, behavior. But it's not the... Um, gold standard of an analysis, which is to illuminate the unconscious. Um, so having said that much, I'd like to, to say other things that occur to me, what the word suggestion suggests to me as a psychoanalyst. Um, we open up an office as an analyst. If it's well furnished, all the better. If it has oriental rugs, better still. Uh, we are suggesting to the person who walks in the room that we have something to offer, that we've had education, that we've had experience, that we may have some wisdom. And so there's maybe something here for you uh, because after all the surround, the holding context carries with it the implication that there is a quality here of something, an aura of a certain kind. 
that in a way goes hand in glove with idealization. You know, it, it suggests that you will find here what you seek. Now, I do have an interest in the paradoxical and the complex, and I think that that's kind of the other side of splitting and idealization, which is so severely either or. Uh, paradox is both and. And so, after all, suggestion, as I've been describing it, also carries with it hope. A person walks into an analyst's office and the analyst says, I can work with you. You know, I'd be happy to work with you. And here in this lovely, you know, setting that implies uh, that's something to receive, this hope that you may gain some benefit here. It is not an explicit communication. It is implied. It is suggested. But there is an opening space of hope, potentially, in that. And then the other side of it is the power of an analyst. Uh, now, the power for benefit, you know, I suggest we meet twice a week. I suggest you consider using the couch. Uh, these are, in a way, also potential expansions or openings of this way we work together and even more good can come of it in a more intensified way. Um, but suggestion uh, also seems to me to be potentially a product of the unconscious, or in the case of predators, the conscious uh, innuendo uh, of someone who could also be exp exploitive in a certain way. There are ways in which it is increasingly understood that the patient doesn't just bring infantile fantasy and formed relational schemas into the neutral analytic space and then unfolds them, unpacks them in the repetition compulsion, which has its own uh, abiding truth. But increasingly, we have a, more of a sense of a relationalization and a democratization of the analytic relationship, so that the analyst's transference, which is given its special term counter-transference, but the analyst's repetitions, the analyst's unconscious blind spots, the analyst's self-idealization, which may be um, an area of blindness uh, or an area of canny awareness, uh, but it can allow, can lead an analyst to form the transference, to intensify the erotic transference, or to intensify a dependency, or to uh, create even the potential for a cultish following uh, among analyzand supervisees, students. Uh, there's a suggestion that uh, um, I'm great, you will find greatness with me. Um, 
Now, I want to just say one, do I have a half minute? You have one half of a minute. Okay. To turn it upside down, I would like to say that I would like to introduce another kind of way of thinking about suggestion, which is not top-down, I will explain you to yourself, but more conjectural, shared. You know, I suggest we think about this. I suggest there may be a link here. I, you know, I suggest we consider, might this relate to what you were saying last week? And so it's an offering rather than uh, a teaching command from above. Thank you. So um, I would like to start actually um, with the question that came up at the break about can anyone who has experienced being a Buddha or an arhat, or an arhat um, speak about that? But I'd like to start that by going back to Andrew and talking about this experience of Buddhahood, the psychic qualities, the moment-to-moment -moment, um, transformation, and ask the question, does it stay? Yeah, I think the, the definition of sort of working skillfully with your mind is that you occasionally stumble across healthy states of mind, which then pass away and vanish. And then the definition of enlightenment or awakening is those changes that you've made to your mind that are healthy uh, stick once and for all. The way I see it, you know, these underlying tendencies that are in our unconscious are bubbling up all the time. And it's a gradual process. The, the metaphor they use consistently is a process of purification, of cleansing, of clearing out, uh, of detoxing, if you will. And what I uh, see happening over time when people do this practice consistently and well is that the anger, for example, it's still there, but it comes up less often. It comes up with less intensity. It, and once it comes up, it lasts with less duration. So you actually can see the progress of a person in this gradual process of purification. And if we can't point our finger at an awakened person, that is, that it's permanently done, we can certainly point our finger at enlightened or awakened actions or characters or tendencies. Thank you. Is that agree or do you disagree with Can't that? Can't disagree with that. Oh, oh, go try. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you say something about it from your uh, frame of reference, maybe. What was the exact question? They, they wanted some arhat to talk about what it's like being an arhat. Uh, yeah, but the question that we're really addressing is the one uh, that you you spoke to, which is once that paradigm shift has happened, it's not going to go away. So that's a, a slightly different model. In other words, the process is underway. You can't stop it, maybe. Well, we're talking about two phases of the same process. Stream entry is here. Our hardship is there. They're on the same continuum, but there are changes at one level, not at the other. I would say that um, once one has seen clearly there is no thing inside them called a self, that's not going to go away. Mm. Um, but uh, it doesn't, well, it's what I said before, you still do screwed up things, okay? It's just that you now have um, a little more powerful place to stand in order to make those corrections. 
So you want to keep the feedback loops open so that you get feedback from people about how you're carrying yourself in the world. And I would say that's the, the main thing that is important for someone that uh, has had a realization like this is, okay, um, uh, what are people telling me about how I carry myself in the world? So the, I don't think the realization can ever go away, but um, you can get way off base if those uh, feedback channels are not available to you. Your behavior may not reflect. Uh, <laughs> uh, and in fact, well, Polly has already pointed it out. It actually can be worse because of your liberation. Yeah, um, yeah I yeah. wanted to ask about, it. so, you know, in listening to everyone speak, and then I had some questions that came up during the break as well. Um, I, what I get concerned about is the relational component of unconsciousness. And Stuart pointed to, you know, and I could call it something other than unconsciousness, but I mean, dynamically unconscious or whatever. Um, Stuart really pointed out something that I think is a very important issue in regard to the exploitation that is connected to potentially connected to ritual, special costumes, special environments, oriental rugs, the psychoanalytic couch, the, all of which we need, or we use, or we think we need, in the process of this awakening. And um, that the analyst, the Buddhist teacher who has even some degree of awakening and skill, is that person capable of really seeing through the power dynamics that are connected to that ritual, to that setting, to that costume, in a way that includes being uncertain about oneself, uncertain about one's effects. Uh, and that doesn't mean just checking occasionally with some people, but actually attempting to have a sense of the ongoing, uh, uh, let's say, I don't even know what to say, accoutrements <laughs> of uh, power that are connected to the specialness of the setup. And then, you know, I have many, many experiences of teachers and seeing people in therapy and so on. Um, and it, it really, I wonder very, very deeply whether an awakening experience or many accumulated awakening experiences actually do produce, and I'll just say this sincerely, a, a, a person who is really concerned about not harming other people, you know? I, I think I'd like to hear more about the slipperiness of these suggestions, the suggestion of wearing the Buddha's robe, the suggestion of being at the head of the zendo or other room, and, and that slipperiness of suggestion, the oriental rugs and the, and the accoutrements of power. 
One thought I have is, as Polly, you said uh, in your initial remarks, that at the end of an analysis, we are actually a more humble person as an analyzand. Then, because we are relinquishing uh, fixed narratives yes. of mine is a sad tale, but a special one, or I'm this or that, uh, and we recognize more what a complex and emergent mess we are. Right. Um, and on the analyst side, uh, I think that part of the responsibility for seeing an analysis to its conclusion is whatever is meant by that idealized concept of a thorough analysis of the idealizing transference. And, you know, is it complete? Is it thorough? Is there, what does that mean? Is there such a thing? But it requires of each analyst that we have a capacity to grieve that we have a capacity to grieve the loss of a person we're attached to, we feel loving toward, uh, and have contributed, hopefully, to their uh, growing. Uh, we have to relinquish uh, the wonderfulness of feeling adored and uh, feeling the gratitude of another human being for all that's happened between us. We have to accept that someone is going into their own life, possibly more creative, possibly sexier, possibly uh, more remunerative, uh, possibly younger and healthier, but they're going on into their own life space that we have no place to, to join, to seek, to contain, to confine, to hold back, to, go, to move toward, to go after. Uh, you know, even though it's lovely to respond to an email or a Christmas card or whatever, but to um, actually let go after having been so intimately involved is, I think, a strain to the person, is indeed a grief. And uh, we're not terminating with every patient, you know, in one day, but it's a recurrent sense of pain. And uh, I think that uh, there are many ways of avoiding it. And those ways include, well, let's enter each other's lives, or let's hold on, or our work isn't over, or the various ways of not accepting uh, that, that we were there to do no harm and to actually contribute to the richness of a life other than our own, even though it is not bad to grow and enjoy the experience. And some of those things are quite different for Buddhist teachers from psychoanalysts. Yeah. Right, but the, uh, because of the ongoing relationship. Yeah. So there's not necessarily having to say goodbye, but I, I like that you're bringing in grieving. Because I think in a relationship between two human beings, there's, there's the, the, the grief of the complexity of being human. You know, the, 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 when we first enter Buddhism or psychoanalysis, there's that hope that you were talking about, that maybe I don't have to be this miserable person anymore. Maybe I can let that go and I can be happy and things can work out for me. 
but the, in, a, in a mature relationship, I think in psychoanalysis therapy as well as in, is between a teacher and student, there's a kind of, oh, yes, we're in this together. Two human beings who have realized that being human is actually impossible. And, you know, the, the, the word purification, I think, can be a little misleading. It's more of a, an ongoing process of becoming more and more and more human you know, uh, kind of wider and wider and wider, accepting everything. And, and I wanted to say another thing, too. In the story that you told Polly about, um, right at the beginning, about Bodhidharma, and you suggested, you know, I loved the way you put that into a, a psychoanalyst and a, and a patient. Uh, the, 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 the feeling that I've always had about that story is how... Bodhidharma ends by saying, actually, literally, the two words in Chinese are no knowing. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of that dialogue. There's no knowing. There's no, no place to, to settle anywhere. So it's this constant unsettling and integration. Did you ever feel sorry for Emperor Wu? Say it into the microphone. Did you oh. feel sorry for Emperor Wu? Did I feel sorry for Emperor Wu? Um, I think when I first heard the story, I thought of him as bombastic, but he was the one with the power in the situation, right? Yeah. I don't think so. I think it can go either way. Well, uh, and, and Robert for, would like to say something. Robert would like to say something. <laughs> you get a chance. Uh, I have a couple of comments. Uh, one, after listening to Shenzhen, I think we can say we probably have an answer to the main theme of the conference, enlightenment, idealized or real, and the answer is yes. <laughs> that pretty much nails it. Yeah, that's the, the both. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to comment on was, that was what Stuart was talking about, which is a suggestion. I agree, I think suggestion is absolutely inevitable in analysis, and it does work both ways. Uh, this does not distinguish analysis from any other human relationship, however. Uh, what does distinguish analysis from any other human relationship is that it gets examined, and it gets examined quite carefully. Um, the problem that Polly was touching on, I think, happens when both parties are making congruent suggestions to each other, mm. and there becomes a sort of folie à deux. They drank the Kool-Aid. They, they all drank the Kool-Aid, but it takes two to tango. You really get into trouble when there are both parties looking for something, something quite uh, congruent, and there's, there's nothing about the concept of suggestion that says that it has to be realistic or even sane. <laughs> so, suggestion works both ways. Finally, uh, I want to comment on what Andrew said. I, I find myself in a very strange position because um, he was talking about, as, as I understand it, um, the goal of, of, of practice is to encourage and develop the good qualities of uh, generosity, loving kindness, wisdom, oh, as, as opposed to the bad qualities, greed, hatred, and delusion, uh, to, to understand them, to see if a quality is helpful or not, and then to somehow 
promote the, the cultivation of the good ones. This is a therapeutic endeavor. Um, the strange position I find myself in is that it occurs to me that psychoanalysis does not do that. It's not a therapeutic endeavor in that sense. I don't think we're trying to cure the, these things. We're trying to be curious about them. So the attitude toward greed or hatred or delusion would be, why is it there? What's it about? What does it mean? Not, this is not useful, um, or this is useful, but rather wh whether something is useful or not, it has a reason for being. So, is, is that it, I'm, I'm coming I'm, in some way. Well, it I think it if it's transformative, it's like what Shinzen was talking about, the Archimedean stance, where it gives you a different perspective. Uh, gives you a sort of a place to stand, to look at yourself, not to improve yourself necessarily, but to see what's there. Uh, uh, a friend of mine, an Argentinian analyst named Horacio Echegoyen once said, if you've had a good analysis, you're better than you were. It doesn't make you better than anyone else. <laughs> That's good. Did you want to say something, Shinsen? Well, just um, historically and culturally, um, there has been a pretty wide range within the Buddhist tradition of how to work with the so-called kleshas or impurities, the whatever, however you want to translate it. I like the word klesha. Andrew, how did you uh, translate it? Toxin. Toxin. Um, I, personally, I like impurity, but it's impurity not in the sense of, oh, you're bad, you have impurities. Uh, it was actually originally a metallurgical uh, uh, metaphor. Uh, there's gold and there's something mixed with that gold that isn't gold and there's a refining process whereby the th uh, so citta pakadi visuddha consciousness by nature is pure <laughs> and then you have these uh, this other stuff gets mixed in so one way to think about that is okay so we gradually eliminate that which is foreign to the nature of consciousness. However, within the Buddhist tradition, that is not the only way that um, this has been dealt with. Um, you were mentioning, well, get curious about it. Uh, and the way that you talked about getting curious about it um, would, I think, represent something that the Buddhist wouldn't do but could probably benefit from. So that would be a, a certain level to work at. But the uh, main Buddhist way, other than, okay, we need to sort of uh, eliminate these uh, impurities, is to eyeball them so carefully, so carefully, that you see that they are simply the dance of space. Um, now, I've been in this business a long time. It took me decades, decades, to even get a hint of what that's like. So it's 
but that's a whole other way to look at it. And oh my God, is that powerful. Just put that out there. Yeah. Can I just uh, suggest that I think the Buddha addressed uh, Robert's point and perhaps the whole psychoanalytical tradition uh, when he said that you can take great curiosity and interest in understanding how an arrow is made, by what sort of feathers that it's fletched, uh, the clan and lineage of the person who shot it at you, but that's not necessarily gonna help you pull it out and heal from being shot by it. So, um, uh, just to clarify, there's the history of where the wound came from, and then there's the experience in the body of observing and allowing and welcoming that. So I think that, you know, he might have been talking about getting, getting to the point, the experience, so. Welcoming the wound from the arrow? Experiencing it, actually allowing the experience to exist without splitting it off. Without splitting it off, right. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, there's kind of, there can be a mistake about psychoanalysis thinking that it has something to do with investigating the past, which it has not, 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 not. It is about the remembered present. In other words, it's the way things emerge in the present and the scars or the habits, or, you know, if you use the Buddhist um, term of the sanskara, it is the investigation of that as it emerges in the present. Um, but the attitude towards it might be different, you know, might be different as to what it is we're actually doing in the investigation. And um, the, um, you know, a, a question I have, and I would, I would particularly like to hear uh, from Andrew, um, but, and also from Shinzen, though I've heard from Shinzen on this many times. Um, but uh, so, you know, let's just say, and some people talk to me in the break, let's just say you have a very enlightened teacher, whatever that means. This is a teacher who has great insight, and the teacher actually teaches in a way that is powerful. And people recognize that. People can experience it. And so this teacher does something that is harmful to another person. Say it's taking advantage of them sexually or what, we would, what looks like that. Say it's manipulating something of their funds, their personal money, or whatever. Whatever it is, the, um, the teacher actually uh, if the teacher checks with himself, let's just assume it's a himself, it could be a herself, but, and, and the teacher says essentially, this is in the framework of the teachings. What I'm doing here is actually in the framework. I can put it in completely to that framework, and even though it looks harmful to ordinary people who have all this dust in their eyes and you know don't see things clearly, I know this is not harmful. Now, my question is, is that teacher actually experiencing the experience that the other person is having, or is that teacher filtering that person's experience through this so-called enlightened lens, and so not actually empathic with the other person, cannot have the sense that the other person is in pain, anxiety, misery, humiliation, which you know, a therapist would, would basically say, oh, I picked that up through my empathic radar. You know? So does the, the enlightened teacher filter this through 
some other filter that makes it impossible to experience it directly. And so can, does not experience having harmed this other person? That's a question. Well, one thing I would say, I think that in the long run, uh, teachers are probably more trouble than they're worth. Um, certainly, from the early Buddhist perspective, again, there were no teachers. I mean, after the Buddha, he said on his deathbed virtually, there will be no more teachers. Let the teaching be your teacher. And so everyone learning the teaching for themselves is an important part of the, of the core tradition. And left with that notion that, you know, you, when you know for yourself, Kalamas, that this is harmful, then you should stop doing it. And if you know for yourself that this is beneficial, then you should stop doing it. In terms of an awakened person, by definition, an awakened person cannot misbehave and cannot do harm. I think there's, uh, awakening is often projected onto teachers. And when they do harm in the various ways that they do, they're simply demonstrating unequivocally that they are not awakened. It's as simple as that. And if they are not seeing and understanding the harm that they're causing, then that's rooted in delusion. Uh, have you met a person who has never created harm? Have you met such a person? No. No, I've never, uh, I've never said that I have met an arhat or an awakened person. So could I just um, Yeah, say I, and I had a specific question for you, too, because <laughs> on this same topic, <laughs> right. you, you raised the terminology that the kleshas are manifestations of, or right. can be, of awakening, and this is kind of the, can be the cloud cover for what Paul yeah. just Well, mentioned. right, and, and I think this is, this is a, a fundamental difference in understanding between um, historical yes. Buddhism, we might say, yes. and and at least Mahayana as it's practiced in Zen, right? Yes, yes. And this, um, there, I think there can be, a, it's dangerous if awakening becomes a thing, right? And so then somebody says, I'm awake, I'm an awakened teacher, therefore everything I do is an expression of awakening. That's the shadow side of what I was saying earlier. It's important to know that this, this humbled quality is something that's very much a part of our tradition. So, so the, the, the awakened nature is actually, well, I always think of something Shunryu Suzuki said, uh, the teacher in San Francisco who was in your lineage, um, that a life in Zen is one humiliation after another. There, there's a way of really encountering life directly, and I think you were just pointing at this, where you, where you examine everything that arises as phenomena and so that phenomena becomes inherently interesting as human life. And we see more and more what it is. And there's more of an embracing, a sort of, this is to me what liberation is. It's being fully awake in the middle of all of this stuff. And it's two different paths, right? You know, one isn't better than the other. Um, but can it lead to harming other people? Oh, of course. So, yeah. So if, it, if there's idealization so there's in a it, right? there's a disagreement then about yeah. You know, awakening is a process and activity. Um, can I would suggest it's not a disagreement. They're just really talking right. out of two different traditions. Exactly. And I wouldn't want this to be a punch-up between, you know, Zen and early Buddhism. No, but it's a, it's a difference. They're a thousand years apart, yeah, historically, and they're speaking in a very different terminology. And yeah. both I, are I'd like authentic. to bridge to the psychoanalytic situation, pick up on something Robert said before, and thinking of what Polly said about, you know, where's the empathic sense of the other? Mm -hmm. And 
the registering of their experience. I'm, th I'm thinking metaphorically that the um, analyst who thinks of himself, herself as awakened has perhaps awakened to another delusion space. Because uh, analysis, you know, is the cure, is the talking cure. And I very much agree with what Robert was saying before that uh, if we negotiate meaning, if we formulate experience uh, between people, that it, it can be a differentiating, individuating process, freeing the mind of the analysand, let's say, in the direction of uh, sort of turning over more of their cards, seeing what they're handed in life, but what choices they have in terms of how they play what they have in life. But where I want to uh, be sure of something, because I may disagree with Robert, when you say it takes two to tango, I utterly agree that in the intimate and intense intersubjective space of analyst and patient, uh, in a field that is highly mutually influencing constantly, that we're inhaling and bathed in our experience of the other's experience in subtle, conscious and always unconscious ways. Um, and in that sense, the patient's idealization or the patient's uh, suggestiveness may indeed have a powerful impact on the analyst and the formation of the analyst's, let's say, countertransference reaction. It is always the responsibility of the analyst. It is always the responsibility of the teacher in a power relationship despite being um, possibly swept in the undertow of powerful feelings from the inside and outside, is always the responsibility of the analyst to do no harm. So um, I know you want to answer before, and then, and then we're going to go to the audience. OK, um, yeah, I, I agree that it's the responsibility of the analyst to not get swept up. Uh, I have also observed that uh, it happens. And if being imperfect means anything, it means not being able to always discharge that responsibility no matter how hard you try. And so to say it's the analyst's responsibility doesn't really mean that much because of course it is, but so what? On the other hand, to say that if, if what you mean by that is that the patient has no role in the sweeping, then I can't agree with that either. I don't think you're saying that. I'm neither saying that the patient has no role, nor am I saying that the analyst should not be swept up. I think if an analyst is assiduously keeping himself from being swept up, he's not doing deep work. Yeah. He's not contacting the person deeply, and yet, and yet, could you say something about projective identification here? Because it's on our list of terms in right now. <laughs> <laughs> that, that we're in this subject right um, now. Let me see if I can weave that into what I was going to say. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, the, the mutual suggestion is, is, uh, is an example of projective identification, and um, it's, a, it's a useful way of looking at it. Uh, I think w one of the interesting things about projective identification, which is basically an attempt to, in, in one sense of the term, an attempt to control the mind of somebody else, AKA suggestion, um, is that the more you're practicing it, the more vulnerable you become, which is why I think it's, it's not just that it takes two to tango, but if there's a tango going on, there have to be two people participating. <laughs> but I, I want to say something about, about Polly um, and the teacher or the analyst, I, I guess we could, we could say, um, not being empathic, not, not knowing that uh, what they're doing is causing pain I want to distinguish between pain and harm because as an analyst, you know, we are in a situation often of saying something that we know damn well is going to be painful. Right. Saying to somebody, look, the way you're going, you know, whatever, whichever choice you make, the way you set it up, you're screwed, okay? And <laughs> it's, it's not, it's, it's, that hurts. You can't say that to somebody no matter how true it is, without them being hurt, being, uh, sorry, pained by it. Yeah. But you're helping them. It's not a lack of empathy necessarily. Yeah. I mean, my, my question really was around the notion of whether there was some um, aspect of um, awakening that so depersonalizes the world that uh, as someone who is awakened could be harmful to someone who is still a regular person. Um, without the uh, so-called awakened person really uh, experiencing the other person's misery or uh, you know, anxiety as real. I think this is a, so far, the, uh, the way I see it, a failure of training of Buddhist teachers in the West, that the integration of personal self and spiritual self and so on hasn't yet been fully brought to this culture. So now you have your chance. You want to come up and get a microphone right? Oh, oh we're He's going got to have it. the microphone taken around. He's okay. Yeah. Is this? It's a green light. Just hold it up like an ice cream. No, it's no, not. No, the green light has to be on. Um, okay, I, I'm Bob Waldinger, and um, I'm, this has been a fascinating conversation. And I just wanted to circle back with this issue of how can a, an enlightened teacher or being harm another? Um, I'd like to circle back to the Bodhidharma story and not known because Zen emphasizes a great deal this idea of beginner's mind and actually the impossibility of knowing reality for, for sure, completely. They, we, think of, we talk about Zen Master Dogen's analogy. He, he thinks about uh, our situation as that of a man sitting in a boat in the middle of the ocean um, who really to the to the man just sitting out there in the ocean the ocean looks around he looks all around and it looks like a complete circle and what dogen reminds us of is of course 
It's not a complete circle. It's got infinite facets that we can't see, that man can't see. And the bird in the sky sees a completely different reality. So our one understanding of enlightenment is that it is waking up to the impossibility of knowing reality. And that therefore, because we think about pathological certainty, that's a lot of what we deal with with the teachers who transgress. They're sure they are enlightened, or the, in, the analyst is sure he or she knows. And from that space, they can do so many things that are quite harmful. So the other, the other thing I'll add, and then I'll be quiet, is that, you know, I think, Andrew, what you said about the Buddhist saying, look, the, the Dharma will teach itself. And if this works for you, fine, you'll learn from it. If it doesn't work from you, for you, you'll learn from that. But one of the convenient things about the precepts is that they allow us a kind of shorthand. They allow us certain aspirations, not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, so that we don't have to make all the mistakes all over again and reinvent every wheel, that we can take somebody's word for it who's been down that road before and really seen how it doesn't work. So the reason Melissa wears that outfit is that she's taken the precepts and that that is a basis both for not knowing and for saying, I'm at least going to hold on to these ideas of what's worked and what hasn't worked as a guidepost to try to keep from harming. Thank you. If I could just... Yeah, um, this is easier than wearing an oriental rug. <laughs> it's not as heavy. Uh, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate uh, that view. And, that, and that's where I was heading a little bit. And I think there's a segue here into empathy and compassion as well. So if we believe that um, the path of awakening is, is becoming less and less capable of... Uh, of feeling all of these human feelings, that's one view. If we believe that it's a, a vastly expanding uh, life of feeling more and more and more, which I think it might, there might be some similarity to psychoanalysis. In the way we teach about um, compassion in Zen, um, the heart actually quivers with pain. In that version of the Brahma Viharas, the, the abodes of the Buddha, it's not that we, we're, we're sort of distanced, right? So that distancing is dangerous, I think. And that's what I think you're pointing to, Polly. But, the, but someone is right in front of us suffering, and that's not, the, the, this is no longer mine, right? It's not her suffering or my suffering, it's suffering. And so the heart quivers with that. I think there's something that happens like that in psychoanalysis. Um, I've been on the other side of it, I've, you know, when I was in analysis. There, there wasn't that, I know better than you, it was more of an invitation, the suggestion that you're talking about. And, and the psychoanalyst was very careful to, um, to be responsible, but in the best sense of the word responsible, to be responsive, right? Really responsive in the moment. Did you have something you I don't mean this as a plug, but in my most recent paper, um, one of the... Th the analyst's generous involvement. And the thing I use is a concept from the uh, psychiatrist Harry Stack Sullivan of the tension 
of tenderness. And I write that uh, if the pain inside the other person is not evoking an internal tug within us to go forth in some way from ourselves toward that pain, then we've, our connection's gone missing and we need to question when, why, how. There's somebody else who wants to, you have a question and we have a microphone somewhere. This person here. Thank you. You want to say your name? Hi, um, I'm Ryujo. I'm from Nichiren Shu. So that's my school. Um, I really wanted to um, hear what everybody on the panel has to say about um, training better teachers in the United States. Because I think that you um, really. Um, touched on that and I send there and I sense there's a lot of opinion on how to do that better and I would really like to know um, all of your perspectives because I think part of what we're getting at from a uh, from my perspective is that we are having this dualism in uh, training teachers that says there's a personal life and a spiritual life and that they're separate you know I asked my master one time if there was anything different between them and he raised an eyebrow and he goes, let me think, uh, no. <laughs> and um, so I would just really like to uh, hear your perspective on how we can keep the traditions that we are receiving from the East while preserving them and also training teachers that we can um, put ethically into community. Well, um, I was uh, part of founding an institute to do that just for this very reason. The training that I received was how do you meditate, how do you bow, how do you wear your robes, how do you eat in monastic style? And what I was seeing was that people didn't know how to talk to each other. So we formed an institute to train people. And um, I think we need to do more of that, much more of that. And I know in the, um, in the ministry here, in the Buddhist ministry, I think people are getting training. And I know that other traditions, Christian traditions, get training like that in seminary. You know, how do you help people? Other people have something to say? One thing. Um, so over the years that I've, I've been very close to my teachers, and I have refused to wear the special clothes because I didn't really want to bear that burden of idealization. Um, and uh, it's idealization that's often not analyzed. Um, I do think that one of the issues in, in teaching um, teachers is to help them understand what idealization is and how it connects to splitting. Because in many Buddhist communities, there is somebody who's elevated and somebody else who is debased and it's part of the community. I don't mean debased in a big D, but you know, it's like there is, um, sometimes it is, so, you know, I'm a practitioner and my partner is not. So I feel a little superior because of that. You know, when I go home and practice, I'm practicing with my superior sense of being, huh, huh, where the other person is like just having a hamburger. And, uh, you know, and so what is that that's going on? Am I conveying something? Is, does there have to be a split? And because idealization always produces this bad object, somebody has to carry the bad object. And so if you don't do that in the training, 
If you don't do that in the community, then you do not have to have somebody who is the, the bad one, whether it's you know your partner who doesn't practice, or it's um, somebody in the sangha who isn't recycling, or somebody who you know is wearing the robes in the wrong way. I mean, there's always somebody's got to be really wrong if you're going to idealize. And so it's around just working with that and seeing how idealization produces this other thing. That's one very key thing. I think it's pretty easy to investigate it and teach it. Um, the other more complicated thing is this issue of projective identification, which is the way we evoke from each other often the things that we disavow in ourselves. And this also happening in a, a community, in a group. Uh, I just wanted to say about methodology is that um, to bring out these feelings, um, I had each and every one of the teachers sit down. One of them was the seductress or seductor, and one was the teacher. And it was wonderful to watch the splitting going on. It's like, get this stuff away from me. <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's like uh, getting dragged into it. So how people can get comfortable with understanding that they're going to have to be there when this is going on. So we did set up role plays for that. Anybody else about training? Hmm? We had another question, Chris. Yes, thank you. Chris Ives. Um, one thing to think about, just thinking about the exchange between Miozen and Andy, and I wonder, as we think about all these issues over the next, what, 24 hours, um, like we have enlightenment in the singular, or we're talking <laughs> about awakening in the singular, and that leads to questions, well, what would an awakened person do? Could an awakened person harm or not harm someone? And it's almost like, you know, this sort of background conceptual framework I, some of us may be working with is, there is this thing called enlightenment in the singular, and most forms of Buddhism say our way of talking about it, you know, we're getting at exactly what the Buddha experienced under the Bodhi tree. <laughs> and to use the metaphor of paths up the mountain, we might approach our conversation as there's this singular enlightenment, but there are various paths to get there, Zen, you know, Vipassana, whatever, Tibetan. Um, and different ways of talking about it, to mix my metaphors, it's because of our culturally conditioned or socialized lenses as a Zen practitioner or a Tibetan Buddhist. Um, but I guess the, the, the thing to think about is um, might different types of Buddhism actually be cultivating different experiences? In other words, we need to talk about enlightenments in the plural. They all fit within, say, the framework of the Four Noble Truths. They all are existentially liberating from suffering, however understood, but they may be different experiences, though all maybe equally or somewhat equally <coughs> liberating to help people get free from the existential question of suffering but are very different in terms of the possible moral transformation that does or does not occur in that existentially liberating experience. So, um, you know, heuristically, I almost want to say there's the existential liberation from suffering that is enlightenment, but whether that has moral fruits or not mm -hmm. depends on the type of experience that is cultivated by this or that type of, so maybe we have multiple enlightenments mm. and with each of them we have to talk about idealized or real <laughs> as opposed to positing a singular experience viewed differently, gotten to differently and hence we may you know, get into discussing well more you know, 
An awakened person could never harm someone. Oh, yes, they could. No, we're talking about two different people with two different experiences, equally liberated from suffering, but maybe very different types of human beings. So we have many Buddhisms and maybe many enlightenments in play in this room this weekend. What do you think? I agree. Can I respond to that? The language uh, can be very, well, we were saying suggestion. <laughs> so um, it can be very misleading. Um, we tend to use the language as though um, we're talking about a, a one-dimensional thing called, uh, liber uh, called enlightenment, shall we say, or even awakening, whatever words we're using. Um, I like to think of it as um, what a mathematician, probably most of you didn't like math, usually our audiences are, don't. I happen to be like a diehard geek. I love math. Uh, a mathematician would call it a vector as opposed to a scalar. A scalar is a one-dimensional, it is a, um, a, a variable in nature that you can measure uh, on one ruler. A vector requires many rulers because it's a multi-dimensional uh, phenomenon. And the reason vectors were created by mathematicians was that uh, a lot of things that happen in the natural world are not one-dimensional. They have independent dimensions to them. So, it's very easy to be constantly thinking we're talking about a one-dimensional thing when we use words, the, these words. So what are the dimensions? We can make a dimensional analysis. Um, I would say for me, and once again this is great because Polly opened it up for me to talk about my experience. So that's all I'm going to talk about, what I have experienced. Um, not what anyone else says. For me, there is one very clear dimension, which is the degree to which you have broken the identification with the mind-body process. That is a dimension and it grows with time. Um, um, then there's another very clear dimension, which is how good a person you are by the ordinary canons of human society. Uh, I am sure that there are those two dimensions. The problem is that that liberation dimension um, <clears throat> is an independent, somewhat independent dimension from how good you are as a human being. So, um, now, they're not completely independent, okay? Uh, in general, once again, we, if we think statistically, you gotta see the big picture, okay? We tend to see the salient cases of uh, abuse. Um, what we don't tend to see is the thousands and thousands of people whose lives have been uh, bettered by these practices, uh, but they just, you know, they're you gotta see the big picture of the thing. So, in general, there is a tendency for people who, who break the identification with the mind-body process, there is, in general, a tendency for them to become better humans. 
but it is not guaranteed. And um, there are ways to make it more likely that they will become better human beings. And that needs to be part and parcel of the training. And the main way you do it is by saying what I'm now saying, very, very clearly. And over and over again, now there's some other things involved. Um, so, uh, is there anything else I want to say about that? Um, uh, yeah, I think that's what I want to say. So, um, when it, if, if that person was not carefully trained to understand that being a good person in the ordinary sense of being a good person is as important as breaking the mind-body identification, then this kind of abusive thing can happen. And it can easily happen because remember they were saying don't cause harm, um, but you might cause pain. And if, if the teacher has been forced to transcend the, uh, all forms of pain, yes. they might not hesitate to impose that on a student right. um, when the student may not be ready for it. It might be harmful. Yeah. Yes. We have someone in the audience, and then you. you. You first, yeah? And then you, and then you. Uh, so, Shinzen, you opened the door for me. I'm a mathematician and a computer scientist. <laughs> and uh, The self is a vector, uh, a vector field. It's close, but not quite. <laughs> um, the world is very complex. It's really fluid and uh, finding whether, making a statement whether one person can do harm or no harm is, is a good step forward. But actually, if you're a parent and you have two children and you say something to one, the other one may feel harm. They feel pain. Okay. So have you caused harm in some fashion? I don't think it really is an easy answer because one is trying to be too precise. In such situations, I mean, we can imagine, for example, politicians that are trying to do real good and yet cause pain or harm in certain situations where we could sit back and say, oh, I know what I would do, I wouldn't do that. And others would say, but there's no choice in certain circumstances. And there have been lots of examples historically in the past, way back thousands of years, where such decisions have to be made. Being passive is not the right solution either, but you can argue both sides. Everything I've heard here points to this fluidness of definition of terms. It's the context that makes the difference. In, the con in a particular context, one can't say that this is correct, not correct, this is safe, not safe, this is healthy, not healthy, this is good, not good. It's very, very difficult. It's a point of view that comes from our own personal experiences as part of this complex world. So I don't have a question, except I would like to put it in a different context, and that is that the terms we use, we think are very precise. But in reality, they're extremely fuzzy because our experience of the world is very fuzzy. 
Um, it's going. Could I make one response to that? Yeah, it's going to go here, but Polly's going to respond. I just I wanted to just make a brief response. I mean, I think there's no doubt that the, the terms are fuzzy and the context change and so on. Things are emergent properties essentially as we perceive them. But I think on a maybe uh, a more I'm not sure if programmic level or whatever, but in, in there's got to be some sort of framework rules of engagement that Buddhist teachers and psychoanalysts use in relation to any kind of path of liberation. Um, and there is something that is inherently human, uh, I believe, about compassion, not necessarily empathy, but because the human infant is so connected to the mother, the caregiver, and watches so carefully that that caregiver is in good shape so that the caregiver can take care of the infant, that there is an immediate setup from birth on to watch carefully someone else's pain and misery and to try to essentially help that person be better because we need that person in order to live. So we have this kind of um, primary sort of template for compassion I don't think it's necessarily the same thing as empathy where we could feel someone's experience without joining with it completely. But my sense is that if the Buddhist teacher or the analyst isn't taught carefully about these issues of suggestion, idealization, power, harm, then you've got a setup where things really shift around in too fluid a way with the fluid developments of what might be the moment to moment. I mean, I think, you know, as, as Stuart said, um, in the psychoanalytic setup, it is always the responsibility of the psychoanalyst. That doesn't mean we're perfect at it. And it also means we have ethical codes and it also means we have ethical committees and a whole bunch of other groups like that that oversee complaints and so on. And not that all the complaints are fair either, but there is at least um, a kind of um, general aim you know, in the direction of not harming. Because these situations that we're in are potentially so powerful to people. The people that come to see us, the people that come to be helped in Buddhist retreats and so on, these are very powerful setups for for people, they're, they're sort of not like watching a video game. May I pre just briefly add? Yeah, so if you're cutting off your wife here, so. Well then. Yeah, I'm, I'm just warning you. Go Pardon? Go your, wife, just your wife is next to go, so. May I make a brief comment? <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting you now in a brief even worse position. What do you mean by brief? Um, I'm thinking of what you said about the parent who inadvertently hurts the child. And my thought is that we are making mistakes every day. And our ethical protections and our self-awareness and our ideals, as opposed to idealization, will never keep us from, in one way or another, saying something that may carry its benefit in one way and its inadvertent hurt in another way. But I think then our responsibility is to notice, 
to not stop there. We're responsible for each thing we've done inadvertently. And we can't prevent the inadvertent, but we notice if we can. Okay, thank you. I want to ask Robert again, and I, th this speaks to your point. Oh, put the microphone on. And turn it towards your mouth. There, yes. now? Yes. yes. I want to ask Robert again. You said, I see that abuse happens, therefore, that two people are, you imply, are you implying that they are equally responsible? For instance, if a seductive patient, if an analyst gives in to a seductive patient, do you, do you think that that's a consensual, uh, a, a consensual agreement? And I want to, it's paradoxical, because Melissa, you say, and I believe it, and Polly, you say, that the, it's mutual influence, you know, I'm not above this person. But you're also talking about a framework, a specific framework that is not muddy, uh -huh. any more muddy than it is uh, for a parent. To, because there's love here. There's love when you're working intimately with somebody. But there's certain behaviors that we must, as teachers and as analysts, be responsible for. Yeah, we, we do not yet have the um, um, ministerial misconduct in every state. Well, we have it for therapists pretty much in every state and psychoanalysts, so. Uh, that's, that's a very good question. I, I think there's a, a, a deep inconsistency or paradox in psychoanalysis, which is that in the situation you're describing, the seductive patient and so on, there's um, a lot going on that's unconscious, um, I would assume. I mean, but the paradox in psychoanalysis is we're still somehow responsible for what happens in our unconscious, something we know nothing about by definition. To know what's going on in our unconscious, to know that we cannot abuse our patients, even if they. Every, everyone knows they cannot abuse their patients, but the people who, you know, it's a question of what's abuse. In, in other words, if you, you know, if you're um, uh, an analyst who says to a patient uh, who is seductive with a patient, who presents uh, herself as you know, your, your new best friend, as opposed to your parents who didn't understand you. That can be very seductive. Um, is that abuse? Some people would say it is. Some people would say it's seduction. I think so we, others would say it's therapeutic. So the question, you know, we are responsible for not abusing our patients, but like in the, in the Buddhist community, I think there are different perspectives. One person's abuse is another person's therapeutic approach. Well, we do have rules about behaviors, though, and I think exactly. that's so we have, rules. we have to talk about the behavior. We, we have rules about behavior. We, we can sanction behavior or condemn or censure behavior. But the, the point I was trying to get at is um, these behaviors are driven by unconscious forces. Um, that's why we need a structure. Well, that, that, I, I'm free to love my patient because I'm, I know that I'm not going to abuse well, my patient. Exactly, but can you say you're responsible for what your unconscious is doing, for what your unconscious is impelling you to do? 
because it can be rationalized as a therapeutic intervention after all, and often is. The best formulation that I've heard about this paradox is that we're not, we can't be responsible for our unconscious, but nobody else is responsible for it either. <laughs> so that gives you a kind of responsibility. You can't, you can't put it on anyone else. But I also, I wanted to respond to something, as long as I got the microphone, that our, our mathematician friend said about context. I think that was kind of got, uh, wasn't really responded to. Um, Willard Van Orman Quine, who I, I think was a professor at this venerable university, said something like, the unit of empirical significance in science is the whole theory. That you don't know what a concept means, like, for example, not to pick on anybody here, but idealization, which I was just, <laughs> we don't know what that means without knowing, what I mean by it, I should say, without knowing my my whole kind of theoretical background. Uh, so in a, in a way, the fluidity uh, of the concept is there, but because we're, we're getting sound bites Yeah, of, we have a few more ideas. sound bites to get right now. There's one there, that was the next one. And Frank, and Frank also over, Frank over here. here. He was, but he, he was first. No. He's got the mic. Uh, he's got the Hello? mic, but she was. She was. Oh, Hi, she my was. name is Lisa, and uh, I was just, I wrote down the degree that you have broken with the mind-body process is, um, you know, a, a into enlightenment. And um, I started dissociating when I was around five years old. And the experience of non-self was the most excruciating, painful experience that I've ever had. Um, it's happened in the last 10 years, too. And I'm trying to, I mean, it's not that I, didn't, wasn't aware of having a self on some level, but I was in such, uh, I'm learning I was in such a state of self-denial and repression that I wasn't able to really have a self or allow myself to have a self. So what I discovered at the age of eight, and eight or nine was that I had compassion for myself and I had compassion for my parents, even though they were in pain. And what I realized is that my way to enlighten, to awareness and consciousness was through attachment and not detachment. And that through attachment, you can actually, when you have enough of it, you can finally be detached enough to have an awareness of everything around you and to tune into the details, but also let go. Letting go through dissociation, if you can call it that, is terrifying. Having a self, have been, being selfless after you've had a self is, I think, what liberates us. Definitely. Does, does anybody want to? Well, just very briefly, of, of course. Um, that's the bittersweet part of only being able to say a few words. It's a long, long essay. Um, I've spoken at length about the phenomenon that you uh, are reporting. Uh, if you go to the YouTube, you'll see what I have to say about it. So um, there is a spectrum in nature of uh, no self-states 
from those that are dysfunctional to those that are the most functional. I didn't give that nuanced uh, formulation because there just wasn't time. But yeah, this is huge, a huge theoretical issue of just why it is that for some people, an experience of no self is the worst thing that ever happened to them. And for other people, it is absolutely the best thing. And I, I mean, I'm sure people have a lot of opinions, but I don't think we have a hard scientific answer to that question. But it is uh, a hugely important question. Um, so I'll just say that, yeah, I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, from the psychological perspective, we talk about healthy attachment, and we don't use the same kind of word in Buddhism. But now, could, could I say uh, yeah, something? You Sorry. I just want to, before you let the microphone go, or as you're letting the microphone go, I wanted to congratulate you on, on naming this. I think it's really important, and I think this is another one of these soundbite vocabulary problems, as Shinsen was saying. But another way to formulate this whole thing using the word detachment is problematic. It's not about detaching. And I think we're talking about two completely different experiences, one of which is really painful, right? And, and the, the other one is liberating in the sense that we, it's not, sometimes we say no self, but I think what we really mean is like no abiding self. Like we see through the solidity of the self in a certain way, but it doesn't mean we don't have a self we can use. And, and that's my sense of what you were pointing to, too. So. Can you describe what abiding means in a situation like you're describing? Like, like the person that I was uh, two hours ago is gone. It, where did she go? She, she was hungry. She, you know, she had to go to the bathroom. Who was that person? And now the person who's here is tired and enjoying the conversation. This constant fluidity of self is, I think, what part of liberation is. The, the clutching of... This is me. And, and I think this is what the Buddha said in all of the iterations of Buddhism, seeing through I, me, and mine, <clears throat> right? But you have to have one first. And I think that's what she said, yeah, yeah so beautifully. So first. Thank you. Okay, now uh, I'm, I'm Frank Summers. I'm a psychoanalyst from Chicago. Um, I have a number of, of disparate things to say, not necessarily related. First of all, with the issue of, of abuse in psychoanalysis and the, the violation, uh, it's not just a question of rules. Uh, in my view, a psychoanalyst says to the patient, um, everything and anything is up for grabs. Everything is grist for the mill, so to speak. And we will talk about it. Whatever it is, it can be talked about. And when you do that, you establish an ontology that is psychoanalysis. It's a unique ontology. I can't say for myself how it's same or different from other traditions, but it is an ontology. And so when you do something different, okay, when you take a seductive patient and get on the couch and start physically relating to that person because they are seductive or not, okay, you are crushing that ontology, okay? And it can never be recovered. The relationship will never, ever, ever, ever be the same, okay? You have crushed something that you have promised, okay? And that is why it is such a violation, in my view, okay? Um, now, I, I wanna say something about Stuart's ideas about suggestion, which I think are very good, because, and I think they're good because it shows the issue of vocabulary, okay? Freud was opposed to suggestion, 
But you know why Freud was opposed to suggestion? Because he meant something very different from it from what Stewart is talking about, okay? Suggestion was a crit criticism of psychoanalysis that you're really not understanding anything. You're just suggesting things to the patient which they buy because you're the great teacher and you are the revered idealized figure, okay? The patient will just accept it from you and it's not really a process of understanding, okay? And that's what they meant by suggestion. So I said, no, this is not suggestion. This is understanding another person. When Stewart says suggestion, he is saying something very different. He is saying that what we offer the pa patient, if I understand Stuart correctly, and I want to understand this way because this is what I think, <laughs> is that everything we offer the patient is in the form of a suggestion. When I make an interpretation to a patient, I'm not saying this is the truth. I am offering it for the patient to do as they will with, okay? And they may, if you want to use the metaphor of the mother-child relationship, they may spit it out, they may gobble it up, they may take part of it in and do something else with the other part. Often they do things with it that I never intended, and that is just fine with me. In fact, I think it works best that way, okay? But it is always an offering, okay? And the patient may reject it or not. So in that sense, it's a suggestion, okay? And that's a very different concept of suggestion from what Freud was uh, attacking, okay? Um, I have several other things to say, but I don't want to talk too long, so like... Right. Got a few more. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, and. So we have several more questions, and we're kind of out of time, so we have to make a decision about this. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to have plenty of time to talk tomorrow. Yeah, do you want, why don't you take this, this woman in? <coughs> well, that she wasn't first, so she's that's not, why. No, I, I'm tracking. Right, take two more questions. Yeah, okay, two more questions. Yeah. The two more were Lewis and this gentleman. And then you were the next one. Okay, so. Well, um, just quickly a couple of thoughts. One is that I think it's very, very difficult to try to define what a so-called good person is and what a so-called <laughs> bad person is. It makes me very uncomfortable to hear this kind of discussion. And when I hear someone, a patient, come in telling me they want to become a good person, he starts Oh, this is going to be a really difficult case. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing about that is, apart from telling what is good and what isn't good, apart from sort of obvious extremes that everyone you know, would agree with certain kinds of things, it's hard to tell what a person is. <laughs> and I mean, some of you are kind of saying it's sort of an illusion, this idea of identifiable personhood. So right there, we have a problem of someone who's a kind of a shifting, amoebic, shapeless uh, movement in flux through space is trying to do something that can't be defined. You know, that sounds like a very difficult task. And, uh, the, and the other part of that is that what was added by Dr. Caper was the unconscious. Of course, you know, we're acting like we're all conscious agents who can make choices and face our behaviors. Well, that's a small percent of our waking life, really. And, and the, that takes us into, if we take the idea of personhood being a flexible, malleable, interpermeable state, then we have to look a lot at the world that the person is in when we're going to talk about goodness and badness, you know, the, the context. but the social universe of the person, not think so much of the individual. I, that's, that direction is, to me, a little suspect in the flow of this discussion. 
Okay. We might have Do time. Want, does anyone want to speak to that, though? Because we might have time today. I'll just say one, one thing to that, Lewis. I mean, my sense is that when Shenzhen says, for example, being good in an ordinary way, um, that what, what he's actually talking about would be kind of like decent human behavior. So maybe part of what we need to think about, because tomorrow we're going to be talking about the ethical foundations of human freedom, is, um, you know, are we talking about behaviors or intentions? Are we talking about context? Are we talking about outcome? I mean, there are a lot of different levels in which you can sort the sort of uh, the, the good and the bad. Um, I, I, I can say, because I, I kind of know everybody up here pretty much, not so well, but a little anyway, that nobody's moralizing. I mean, I think that that's where sometimes what happens is people get into moralizing, but um, you might, I looked at the, your face and it looks like you're skeptical of that. Um, yeah, it's a risk. It's a risk. And so, um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that would, would be, it, isn't, it doesn't suit the group here. This was a big question, but I'm not seeing a, some, I'm not seeing as much crosstalk between the two as I'd like. So I have a question, and that is, I'll narrow it down. Shinzen said, "This experience, this not, not an experience actually, but whatever, of disidentification from the body mind is so crucial. It's a marker. Is there anything like that?" In psychoanalysis, or is he idealizing? Um, well, I mean, I could just say that, that um, in psychoanalysis, that disidentification would be more likely talked about as pathological. The disidentification would be talked about as pathological and painful. And as Shinzen was saying, there's a whole arc or a spectrum of this kind of phenomenon. Okay, but the positive side. The positive side, I don't think so. I mean, unless you say that flexibility in regard to your sense of who you are, what you're about. You know, I think from the psychoanalytic side, as I said in the beginning, that at the end of an effective treatment, there's kind of an uncertainty. There's a, a, about, who, you know, sort of what kind of person you are and what motivates you that, that um, in the in the you know in the best outcomes actually means that people become more modest about what they know and in a certain sense kind of say i'm i'm not so sure what my motivations are here and so i have to check and i have to check with the people around me as well as checking with myself so there's some flavor there that's maybe similar but uh, i i would say I believe in the way Shinzen talked about it. It is a different kind of thing. Can I can I comment on that? I mean, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna dis I'm gonna disagree with Polly about psychoanalysis necessarily viewing that as pathological. I think there is a kind of disidentification with the self. 
in the sense of recognizing basically the unconscious and recognizing that you really don't determine who you are, that you have no more control over who you are than you do over who someone else is. And there's a kind of detachment then where you're not strictly identified with yourself, you're kind of standing in this Archimedes platform looking, <laughs> looking at yourself in that sense. And I think that's not, would, would not be considered pathological at all, on the contrary. Right, one might recognize impulses and traumas and not, and not act them out, not feel that they were necessarily part of life. So is he talking about a sort of a more complete, more profound version of the same kind of flavored experience tomorrow, there? Tomorrow. I wouldn't tomorrow. go that far. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Idealizing. <laughs> yes. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> yes. So we, we have. You have to come back to get these answers. Yeah. yeah. You got to be there to win. Actually, show up around quarter of nine so that we can all be, show up around quarter of nine so we can all be here at nine, and then we can get started. And we'll continue on the same as you were wonderful. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Grace. Thank you. Everybody.